So we begin a new series today in the Gospel of John called Encountering Jesus. In a lot of ways, this is precisely why God made us. A lot that you can say, well, he made us to worship him. He made us to glorify him, to enjoy him. These are all similar realities. And yet we encounter him, and when we do, it's when we enjoy him, and the enjoyment of Jesus is worship, and that glorifies him. It displays his glory. And so our very existence is tied and wrapped around this reality of we have been made to encounter Jesus, to see his majestic glory, to have our hearts gripped with everything that he is and what he has done with his sacrificial death and resurrection, and our hearts are designed to then feel. So the reason why we feel is because God has made us to feel, primarily to feel joy in his presence, to have our hearts burn for him, for him to be our greatest treasure. He's made us to be hungry for him. And this study in the gospel of John, we're going to see over and over throughout the whole gospel where Jesus is constantly encountering people. It's really remarkable how all of these times that you see throughout the gospel, Jesus meets people. He's, he is encountering them. They're seeing him face to face, and their response is varied. And so we'll see that throughout the book. Some people respond with faith. Some do not. But we have been designed for this, that we would respond with faith in him as we encounter him. I pray that as a church that we would just be overwhelmed by the magnitude, the heaviness of his glory as we see these various encounters throughout the gospel of John. But before we jump into John chapter 1, I want to read the thesis statement. So the purpose statement from John. So it's not mine. I did not write it. I, I was not inspired to do so. John was. John was one of the disciples of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. His brother was James. So James and John were brothers, and also Peter and Andrew were brothers. But in the inner circle, Jesus had Peter, James, and John. Well, this is John who was inspired to write this gospel. He also wrote Revelation and also the three epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is the same man that God inspired through his spirit. And here is what he says about why he wrote this book, John chapter 20. So towards the end of the book, we'll get to that in April. But John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote the book, that we would have life and believe, have faith in Jesus, that he is God and he is Messiah. And, and so when, when you look at the Gospel of John, there's a whole lot for us to unpack, but what we're seeing here already in the intro is that we are designed to know Jesus, to love him, and to respond with real life. Now, let me give you a brief breakdown of the book. For those of you that are more academic or taking notes, which is quite a few of you, this is kind of the overview of the book. There are four, there's a lot, but primary, large headings. There's four main sections in the Gospel of John. The first one is the prologue or the opening. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We'll look at that today. So you have the first 18 verses is the prologue. And what you see in these first 18 verses is the three main convictions that you will see throughout the entire gospel. And so everything that we're going to see in the entire Gospel of John is already there, already present in the prologue in the first 18 verses. So there's three primary themes that you see that are carried throughout the entire Gospel. And we will look at these this morning. 
in the prologue, and then we'll be seeing them over and over and over and over throughout the whole book because these themes tie the book together. And so we will look at that today. So there's the first 18 verses. That's the prologue. The second section is seven signs. Now, you just saw what we read in, in chapter 20. It said there are many more signs. And so the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call them miracles. In John, they are miracles, but they're not called miracles. It's called a sign. And so these are signs that are pointing to Jesus as the Son of God and as Messiah, as the Christ. And so there are seven signs that we see throughout chapters 1 through 12. So beginning with verse 19 after the prologue through chapter 12, it is organized around seven miraculous signs. And then you have the third section, which is chapters 13 through 20, some very well-known passages. There's what's called the upper room discourse. This is Jesus washing disciples' feet and teaching about the Holy Spirit, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and, and then institutes the Lord's Supper communion in chapter 17. And so that's this whole conversation with his, his followers before he is then betrayed, has a kangaroo court, he is convicted, crucified, and then he resurrects. So that's chapters 13 through 20. But this whole section, if you look at it, what Jesus is doing is he is creating and commissioning his messianic community. So that's what's happening. Verses thir- I mean, chapters 13 through 20, he is creating and then commissioning his messianic community. So he creates them with his work on the cross, and then he sends them out. He commissions them to go, to not to be of the world, but to be in the world. And as the Father has sent me, now I send you. That you see in these chapters. So chapters 13 through 20 is the creation and the commissioning, sending out of his community. And then lastly, the fourth section is the epilogue. That's chapter 21. It closes the book. And that is the restoration of Peter after he denies him. And all the themes in the epilogue, the last chapter, it really is a bookend to chapter 1. The same themes are once again repeated. I could say a lot more about that, but that's a brief overview of the book. It's where we're headed from today through April. Now, some of you just thought, oh, that's such a long series, like, from early in the year until after spring break, when it's not going to be storming, but it's going to be blazing hot in April, like one series that's that long? Yes. And now others of you just thought, you're crazy. Four months? You should take four years to go through John, because that's been done. Like John MacArthur and others that like take literally years in the gospel of John. And as I was looking at the book and breaking it down, I identified easily 60 sermons in John. Like 60 sermons would be well over a year. Just do the math. Um, And it would not be hard. Like if we looked at every single paragraph, every single like scene in this book, it really would be well over a year. So just to give some credence to those of you that were like, oh no, this is going to be a flyby. Like In some ways, it kind of is, because there is so much to cover in these 22 chapters. So just so that everyone is aware, I am not going to preach on every single paragraph in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to preach on every single scene or every single verse. I I can't do that in just four months. It's not possible. However, I will summarize the sections that I'm not preaching in, And our home groups will be studying the following text that was not preached on. So, for example, today we'll look at verses 1 through 18. And our home groups will look at the second half of chapter 1. Next week I'll preach on chapter 2. So I'll be in chapter 2, verse 1, next Sunday. So if you don't go to home group, you're going to miss the second half of chapter 1 of John. So don't miss your home group. Like, it's really important. So this is a temporary departure from our norm. We usually 
study in our home groups what was preached. Well, not the sermon, but the text that was preached. And so that is our normal pattern. We'll go back to that. Even towards the end of John, we'll be back to that. The last few sessions in this study, we'll go back to normal. But there's going to be about 10 weeks or so where it's going to be a little bit different. And some of you are wondering, well, why? why? Why do we have to change things so early on in our church's tenure? Well, I'll give you three reasons why I felt led to change the way we do this for these next 10 weeks or so. One is I want to highlight the importance of personal study. I think too often believers rely on feeding on Sunday morning, and then they don't eat again all week until the next Sunday morning. And if you're only feeding your soul from the word on Sunday, you're not going to be healthy or strong or vibrant. You're going to be overrun by temptation. You're not going to withstand the enemy. You'll you'll be eaten alive. So you have to study on your own every single day and feed your soul from the word so that you're healthy. And couple that with meditating, thinking about it, and then and praying, like all of this is very important. So I want to highlight that I'm not going to cover every single section, but I'm going to trust you that you're going to go and study what, where we leave off. And then secondly, I want to highlight the importance of your home group. Because if you're not in a home group, then you're going to miss out. You're, you're not going to have that Bible study with God's people to go deeper into the passages that I'm not going to cover on Sunday. And so next week will be in chapter two. And you're like, whoa, what happened to the rest? I'm like, well, home groups, you missed it. I'm sorry. But if you're in a home group, then you won't miss it. You won't miss anything if you're here and also in your home group. Lastly, the reason why we're doing this is, is I want to highlight the importance of eating a varied diet from God's word. Renewal is still a young church. And there's other themes and other books that I feel God's leading me to, to preach throughout 21, and if I would spend all of 21 on just John, which would not be a bad thing, but it wouldn't allow me to cover other themes or other topics or other books that I believe that we need early on to establish the, the DNA, the, the culture of Renewal Church. And, and so the day will come when we're far more established that, yes, we will have maybe a year-long series. That's possible but I don't feel led to do that at this point in our church's tenure, in our church's history. Um, So there's a lot to be said, but that's kind of some reasons why we're doing it this way. And so let's dig into chapter one. The title for this sermon, as we're looking at the prologue of John, it is Encountering Unsurpassed Greatness. That's what's happening in John 1, verses 1 through 18. You are literally encountering unsurpassed greatness because you're encountering Jesus himself. John chapter 1, let's begin with the first three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, this morning, what we want most is to encounter you. In the beginning was the word, you, Jesus. And you were with God the Father. And yet you are God. You are one with God. The Father, and you share in the same divine essence. And God, as, as we approach this text, it's a bit overwhelming and daunting. There is such amazing and high Christology in this text that describes you, Christ. And anything that I say just does disservice to you in your magnificent glory. So I just ask for your help. I ask that your spirit would be heavy in this place, that he would grip our hearts, and that we would respond with greater love and devotion and missional zeal for your glory, we ask Jesus. Amen. 
there are three primary convictions, as I mentioned earlier, in the Gospel of John, and all three of them are right here in this opening of the book. And so we'll look at those here this morning. And so there are three truths. The first one is we're seeing the identity of Jesus. And so we're seeing right out of the gate, verse 1, it's crying out, know who Jesus is. So the gospel writer, inspired by the Spirit of God, wants us to know the identity of Jesus. And so we will see this theme carried out through the whole book, this thread of the identity of Jesus from beginning to end. And so here is this conviction number one from the Gospel of John. It's that Jesus is unique. He is utterly and completely unique. He stands alone with no rival, with no one above him. He is God in the flesh. And so the first conviction that you'll see throughout the whole book is that Jesus is unique. And so we're looking at here the identity of Jesus. And so we're like, well, who is Jesus and what is he like? Not, not the Jesus that our world claims to talk about, but they basically make Jesus to be like a vending machine where if you put in your quarters of religiosity and you, and, and you, and you put in your works and then you kind of push the, the code, like I want A2, I, I want a bag of chips. And, and so you push the button and then Jesus owes you to give you whatever it is that you want. It's like he's like this cosmic vending machine or this, or this genie that you rub him the right way and he comes down and says, well, your wish is my command. And, and, and we think of Jesus wrongly. The Bible here is saying, think about Jesus correctly. Who is he? What is his identity? And so there are three words right here that we're going to look at that describe the identity of Jesus. Three words. The first one, Jesus is the word. So it's saying, who is Jesus? Jesus is the word. You see it in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We'll see it in just a minute in verse 14, here in chapter one as well. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word who became a human, who took on human flesh. But the question is why? Why would the Bible describe Jesus as the word? Well, the reason why is that God reveals himself and his purposes. So God reveals through his word and he reveals his glory through his word. You also see in Genesis that God creates through his word, through the power of just speaking. And so in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, so God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. Day two, and God said. Day three, and God said. Day four, day five, day six, day seven, and God said, and there was. And so God is creating through his word. And so Jesus is called the word because the word does two primary things biblically. The word creates and the word reveals. And so God's word is his power of creation and also his power of revelation. God reveals what he is like. And so the word is so beautiful because the word reveals to us who Jesus is and what he is like. The law was beautiful, is beautiful because the law reveals God's character. And so Jesus is called the word because he is the creator and he is a revealer of what God is like. In John 14, which we'll get to that like in April. It's awesome. Well, actually, probably March by, by that one. And uh, there's this conversation with Philip. And Philip says, oh, I'm so confused, Jesus. Can you just show us the Father? That's all I ask, Jesus. Just show us the Father and that's enough for me. Jesus, this is in John 14, verse 9. He says to him, whoever has seen me has seen Father. 
How could you say, Philip, show us the Father? What's wrong with you? We spent three years together. I'm going to be crucified tonight. And you're saying, show me the Father. He's like, you've already seen the Father. You've seen me. So he is the word because it's the word that reveals what God is like. So what is God like? Look to Jesus. And you see what God is like. You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he is the word. He was there in the beginning. So you see John 1, 1. It says, in the beginning. That should remind you of something. Genesis 1, 1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John didn't write in the beginning, like, by accident, or, oh, what a coincidence. Like, this is very much on purpose that he's saying, in the beginning was the word, because that should remind you to Genesis 1, which in the beginning, God created. Jesus was there at creation. Why well, it says in verse 2, we just read it, he was in the beginning with God. But it's not as though Jesus was there as just like a spectator, just watching the Father create. says in verse 3, all things were made through him. You hear that? Everything that is not God is made. The only reality in existence that was not made is the Trinity. Other than the Trinity, everything else in existence, heaven itself, was made. So the only non-made reality is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it says in verse 3, John 1, it says, All things were made through him, the Word, Jesus, and without him there was not anything made that was made. Nothing is in existence apart from the work of Jesus who was there at creation. He is the creator. This is a cosmic, eternal creator. God is who Jesus is. And what's amazing, that language from verse 3 on nothing was made that is made, that same language is the same that you see in Genesis 1 where it says, let there be be. And it was. This language from Genesis 1, and so God said, and it was, is what this word here in John 1 is made. It says, and there's nothing that was. There's nothing that was made. And so John is on purpose taking our minds back to Genesis 1 and saying, this is all about Jesus being the creator and God himself. So the Bible is just declaring Jesus is God in the flesh, the creator, and he radiates the glory of God, which is Hebrews 1, another text of high Christology that describes Jesus. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one upholding every single molecule that is vibrating as we speak, that exists in the universe. Jesus is literally holding it together through the power of his word. And so who is Jesus, his identity? He is the eternal, all-powerful creator, pre-existent word become flesh. Jesus is unsurpassed greatness. This is who we worship. And it's designed to just leave us in awe of who he is. But it doesn't just say he's the word. It also says that Jesus is the life. That's the second key word of his his identity, he is the life. Next word, I mean, next verse, verse four. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. He says that he, in him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. And so Jesus described as the life. And this, again, is meant to have our minds go back to Genesis and creation in chapter 2. In verse 7, where it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That, that's amazing. That God breathed life into Adam and brought him to life. And so Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, so God alone has self-existent life. Only God has self-existence because every single life that exists has come from God. And so there is no life apart from God because before there was any other life, the only living reality, the only living divine person was God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Nothing else existed. Nothing else had life except for God. And so anything that has life has come from God. His self-existent life. He breathes life. He is the source of life. He is the fountain of life. There is no life outside of God. And so when it says that he is the life, talking about his eternal self-existence, how he is not dependent on anything or anyone. He is self-dependent, self-existent. If you're curious and you like some theology, this is called the aseity of God. You can go Google and look it up more if you want. This is what it's describing is how God is self-existent. And you will see this theme of life throughout the whole gospel of John. It's right there in the beginning and it's carried throughout. John 3.16, that we should not perish but have everlasting life. John 6, he is the bread of life that came from heaven. John 10, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I could keep, there's 38 of these. There's 38 times in the Gospel of John that the word life is described as being Jesus. He is the life. Over and over. And it's like the gospel of John is screaming out to us and says, there is only death outside of Jesus. There is no life outside of him. There is only sadness and darkness. Death. Depression. There's no life. And the whole theme of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is about the kingdom of God. But in John, the emphasis on eternal life. And so Jesus is the word. He is the life. And I love John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life. This is Jesus praying. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He was like, this is life, knowing you, God. That's what life is. And outside of that, there is none. So Jesus is the life, and he is the light. He is, this is the third, his identity, he is the light. We saw in verse 4, he says that his, he is the life, and it says he was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome Jesus. Jesus is the light who has come into the world. Again, this should remind us back to Genesis chapter 1. Day one of creation. What is the first thing God says? And let there be light. And there was light. And it was made. 
He brought light into the world at creation, and Jesus is the light who has come into this world because it is currently occupied by the kingdom of darkness. See, when Adam and Eve gave over their rulership over the earth, it was occupied by Satan's domain, his kingdom of darkness. And so we live in occupied territory. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, but it was given over to Satan. And so currently Satan is ruling. And if you don't think so, watch the news. I, I can't. I guess this week was torturous. I can't watch the news. It's painful. We live in a world where there is darkness, but Jesus came to shine his light and to push back the darkness, to defeat the kingdom of darkness and bring his kingdom of light, to push back the darkness, to push back the evil, the anxiety, the depression, the addiction, the emptiness, to bring back hope and life and light. He is the eternal word of God. Through, through his power, he is creating and revealing who God is. And so who is Jesus? He is the word, the life, and the light. Do you see how all of John 1's description of Jesus is all wrapped up in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in creation? It's not by accident, I promise. This is God's purpose. See, God created the world, and now it's been plunged into darkness under the curse of sin and death. And so Jesus here is being presented as a new Adam, as the head of a new humanity who is recreating. He is making all things new. That's who Jesus is, creating a new humanity that are restored back to his image who worship him and who walk in the light and in freedom, who have life and who love the word. That's the identity of Jesus, the word, the life, and the light. The second major theme throughout the book that we'll look at here, that's also in the prologue, is the mission of Jesus. So one, we see the identity of Jesus, and the second, we see the mission of Jesus. So why did he come? What is he actually about? Now, there's a lot of words that we can use to describe his mission, but I like to use the word restoration. His mission is restoration. And the reason why is, you see right here in the prologue, it's all about going back to creation. So Jesus is recreating. What he's doing is he is restoring us and his universe back to its original purpose before there was darkness, when there was light, when Satan was not ruling over the earth. And, and so he is restoring us back to his presence and back to light and to holiness, back to him. And so Jesus came and took the curse of sin and death. And so his work, you could also call it renewal. Why our church is called renewal. That is God's mission. He is renewing the earth and his people to restore us back to our original purpose of being a worshiping community who love the king. And so here is the second conviction that you see throughout the whole book of John, that Jesus is Messiah that Jesus is the Christ who has come to restore his people back to the Garden of Eden, back to shalom, to peace with God and with others. And Jesus, the Messiah, is accomplishing this through his death and resurrection, which we will see later in the Gospel of John. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 8 in the prologue. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, so he's not Jesus. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He came to point to Jesus, the light. And so John here is described as a prophet who was pointing to the coming 
of Jesus. Now, I won't preach on this today, but it, we'll talk about our home groups. Chapter 1, verse 23, so here in John 1, it says that Jesus, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's John 1, 23. Now, we have the privilege, or sometimes I think it's, it doesn't help us, but we have chapters and verses. So what's good is that we can find chapters and verses, but what happens is we tend to not memorize a lot of Scripture because we have like Google, we just look it up, and we don't have to memorize. It, it, it haunts us. The ancient Jews didn't have chapters and verses, and they didn't have Google. And so they memorized large significant large portions of scripture. And so whenever you would see a scripture quoted, like in this case, one verse quoted here about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is what John is quoting. And he's saying, Isaiah 40, verse 3 is about me. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. We don't tend to know the whole context. We just, oh, we read the one verse. And say, oh, okay. But in the ancient world, whenever a Jew would hear one verse quoted, one sentence quoted, what it would do is it would trigger their memory of the greater context because they knew it. And so John didn't have to quote all of Isaiah 40 because they already knew Isaiah 40. By just quoting that one verse, it would also, oh, oh yeah, that's right. We, we know that because they already knew it. But we don't, so we have to read it. So Isaiah 40. Verse 1 and 2, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, and her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it says that Israel had sinned, had abandoned God, but now God is promising pardon. He's promising forgiveness. For the fact that they had sinned, they were in darkness, and that God's promising comfort and forgiveness. And then you get to verse 3, which is what John says it's him. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our people. So John, when he quotes this about him coming to make the path straight, the context is the people of God had been sinful and abandoned God and, for, and had other idols and forgot all about God's glory. They didn't deserve God's mercy, and yet he is promising here comfort and pardon for all of their sin. And you jump down to verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see, when you, when you see the whole context, you understand that John was the prophet fulfilling the promise that the Messiah was in to come so that God's people could be forgiven from their great evil and their idolatry. It puts it in context of what's going on here. It is about Jesus fulfilling his mission of bringing forgiveness and creating a people for himself. Verses 9 through 11, back to John first, chapter 1, verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. He came into the world that he made to offer us pardon, to offer us forgiveness for our sin, and the world rejected him because we're blind. And because if we're honest, and let's just all be honest, humans like the darkness. We like sin. If we didn't find any joy in it, then we wouldn't do it. There's a lot of things that I don't find joy in watching on TV that my daughter, my wife like to watch sometimes. And I'm like, you guys can watch that. I'm going to go read. Like, I, I can't. I can't. I can't watch that baking show. I, I can't. I can't. That great British baking with 
the soggy bottoms and it's like, I was like, oh, I can't. I had no joy in it. So I leave. There's no temptation. There's no draw to be part of it. I'm like, y'all enjoy it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go sleep. I'll go watch grass grow. It's more interesting than this. When your heart is not interested in something, there is no draw. There's no temptation. The reason why you click on pornography is that you like it. To be honest, you like it. You like how you feel. You like the dopamine that's released in your brain. You, you like the rush that you feel. If you didn't like it, you would not look for it. Now, yes, afterwards you feel shameful and guilty and dirty, and, and yet you do it again. If, if you are trying to be healthy physically, and you say, well, I'm not going to eat as much sweets or less, I'm going to have less sugar. Well, why do you, you like it. You like the sugar. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't be tempted by it. The reality is that we sin because our hearts are in darkness. If our hearts weren't in darkness, Jesus wouldn't have to come. We wouldn't need the light to come from heaven. We wouldn't need the bread of life to come. We wouldn't need redemption. We wouldn't need restoration. We wouldn't need freedom. If we, if we had all of our stuff together, we wouldn't need Jesus. The reality is that we are in darkness and we like it. Like it or not, we tend to be more like the cockroaches. You turn on the light and they all run. They all run away and run for cover because they don't like the light. They hate the light. Humans in their natural condition are sinful and corrupted and we hate the light. We like the darkness because the kingdom of darkness is ruling in this world and we are born sinful and corrupted. We need a savior. We need something divine beyond ourselves. We need the word and the light and the life to come and do something that we cannot do for ourselves. To do something that we don't have the willpower to do, which is what you see in verse 12. Yes, people did not recognize, they did reject Jesus Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The sequence here is powerful. It's past tense. It's passive. We've received. So if you have received something, it says as you've received him, it's because you then, next point, you believed, you had faith, you believed in him, which then gives you the right to then become, to be made a child of God because you were born of God. So there's this sequence. So working backwards, God takes initiative. He makes you born of God, then what that means is you become adopted into his family, which then you believe, and then you receive him. And so the sequence here is very important. We receive. He does the work. He regenerates. He opens your eyes. He breathes the breath of life into you. Your eyes are open. Then you say, oh my God. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus. Forgive me. I want you. Come into my life. And then you receive him. But you do no receiving or believing or becoming until he does the bringing you into the light and you being born by him. And I love the Spanish language because sometimes it's more colorful than English language. Um, when you talk about a child being born in Spanish, you know how you would say it? Dar luz. You know what luz means in Spanish? Light. So when the child is born, you would say, she, dar luz, means to give light. So to bring to light. 
When the child is born, they're brought to the light. They were in darkness, and now they've been brought to light. That's how you would say in Spanish, it's beautiful, that luz, it's, it's amazing. It captures this amazing truth beautifully. We were the ones that were in darkness, and God made us born of God, born of his spirit. And again, this is a theme that we'll see born again, but with Nicodemus, this is a theme throughout the whole book on being born again, new birth is a coming to the light. And you don't come on your own. It is God who loves you and turns on the light and he grabs hold of you and you don't run away. And then you, you hold him back and you respond to his Love, his mercy. And the last truth is our time is way already expired. I'm trying, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, I'm sort of sorry. These themes that we see in John that we see in the beginning is we have, first of all, the identity of Jesus. We have the mission of Jesus. And lastly, we see the people of Jesus. We see him creating a people who walk in the light, who have been made new, born of his spirit. And you see that in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh, and we have seen him. The people that have received his mercy, that are born again, brought to light, are the people who see his glory who see his unsurpassed greatness. I preached on this just last month in, in our Christmas series, a sermon called The Wonder of Jesus. I talked about the hypostatic union and the incarnation. If you missed that sermon, it's on the website. And we talked about this word becoming flesh and how wondrous that is. This idea of seeing his glory is the same language from Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses was hid behind the cleft of the rock, and he just saw God's glory passing, but just a glimpse and just the back of, of God. And it made his shine, his face shine brightly. Just glimpse of God transformed Moses. And it says here, we have seen him. So this is the people of God are the people that are gathered as his community, his messianic community. This is a theme throughout the whole book that, that we'll see that are called to then go out and to reflect his glory. Verses 15 through 17 is as we wrap up. John bore witness about him, cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He was before me. He, he's eternal. And verse 16, and from his fullness, his fullness of divinity, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We received this heaping like waves of grace that he keeps piling on us. He heaps grace on us. For the law was forgiven through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we draw near to this remarkable Jesus who gives us grace, who came in truth, revealed the truth of who God is, and he gives us grace. Um, I mentioned that this is a hard week for me. I'm going to be honest. Like, this was a brutal week for me. Um, seeing our, our country torn apart, seeing people storm the Capitol, people losing their lives in the process, I don't even know where to begin. It was just so hard. And like my stomach was just in knots for a couple days. And, and Bonnie's awesome. She came up to me and said, close your eyes. And I did. And I was like, what are you going to do? And she, she got a marker and she wrote hashtag R1J on my, on my hand. And she reminded me of Revelation 1, Jesus. The same Jesus that I was spending time with and preparing to share his word with you. Because my mind was so focused on, we need election law reform at the state level. And we need fiscal responsibility with $27 trillion national debt. And, and we need 
And we need to have our free speech to no longer be censored. And all of these thoughts, I was just so frustrated. I was so angry. And, and having my wife remind me of what, like, it's crazy because you're in the Word and you watch TV and then you, like, disconnect that. And that's foolish. Because what we're seeing here about who Jesus is, when we think about what our country actually needs. Yes, I think that we need a lot of things, but what our country actually needs is in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. We need to see Jesus. That's what our country needs. We need a revival. And some of you are fighters, I know. Like, we need to fight, pastor. Like, yes, we do. How do we fight? We're doing it right now. We do it by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We do it by walking in the light as children of the day. We do it by seeing lives transformed by the gospel. That's how we fight our battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not. So may we be of good courage, people who are strong and people of faith, who see the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus, the same Jesus of Revelation 1, who here is described as the word, the life, and the light, who's pushing back the darkness. May we rest.